Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, this Christmas season, we're, uh, we're looking at getting Christmas right. Um, and so I thought probably the good way to do that this morning would be to start with a Christmas quiz. Um, We've done this once before, once or twice before. It's been about four, three or four years since we've done it before. So some of you probably already know the answers, or you should by now. You've got no excuse. But um, what I'd like you to do is take out a piece of paper, all right? Get a pencil out, a pen, whatever. Um, use your outline there, n- number 1 through 11 down the side, okay? And uh, we're going to see it's multiple choice, okay? So you got a pretty good shot at this, all right? So question number one, real simple one. We'll start off easy. Joseph was from A, Bethlehem, B, Jerusalem, C, Nazareth, D, Egypt. Question two. Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem by A, camel, B, donkey, C, walking, D, Joseph walked, Mary rode the donkey, or E, who knows, Who cares? No. Um, Three, Joseph discovered Mary's pregnancy, A, from Mary, B, in a dream, C, from an angel, D, both B and C. Or we'll throw in there E, all of the above, just in case you're not too sure. Question four, a manger. A manger is A, a stable for domesticated animals, B, a wooden storage bin for hay, C, a barn, D, a feeding trough. Question five, Mary and Joseph were directed to Bethlehem by A, an angel, B, Herod, C, Mary's mother, or D, Caesar Augustus. Question six, the wise men found Jesus in A, a manger, B, the inn, C, a house, D, a stable. Number seven. How many angels spoke to the shepherds? A, one. B, three. C, a multitude. Or D, none. Question eight. What is a heavenly host? A, the angel at the gate of heaven. Ah, some of you caught it. B, the angel, an angel choir. C, God's special messenger angel. Or D, an angel army. Question nine. When did the baby Jesus cry? A, when he opened the wise men's presents. (laughs) B, whenever babies usually cry. C, when the cattle started lowing. Whatever lowing is. Or D, no crying he makes. Ten, what song did the angels sing? A, O little town of Bethlehem. B, joy to the world. C, glory to God in the highest. Or D, none of the above. And the last question, 11, bonus question here. What animals were present at Jesus' birth? A, cows, sheep, and camels. B, cows, sheep, and donkeys. C, lions, tigers, and bears. Or D, none of the above. That's the bonus question. All right, I'll trust you to correct your own papers here. Be honest now. Here we go. 
Question number one, what did you put? Joseph was from C, Nazareth. He's from the city of Nazareth. Traveled, ordered to travel to Bethlehem, but he was from the city of Nazareth. Two, Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem by E, who knows? We really don't know. I know on the pictures, on the, on the Christmas cards, it's always Joseph leading a donkey with Mary sitting on it, but there's no mention at all of how they got there. They just got there. Three, Joseph discovered Mary's pregnancy, D, both in a dream and from an angel. An angel appeared in a dream, we're told. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Question four, a manger is D, a feeding trough. That's all it is. Five, Mary and Joseph were directed to Bethlehem by D, Caesar Augustus. He sent out a decree that all the world, that's why they went. Six, the wise men found Jesus in C, a house. By the time the wise men got there, they had moved out of the stable area. They were actually visited in a house. If you don't believe me, Matthew chapter 2, look it up. (laughs) Seven, how many angels spoke to the shepherds? Just one. Just one. Eight, what is a heavenly host? Actually, D. An angel army. That's technically that's what it is, a host. Um, Nine, when did the baby Jesus cry? B. Whenever babies cry. He was he was fully human. That was the whole point. I know what the song says, I know what we just sang, but it's wrong. Sorry, Brian. (laughs) Bad theology in our music around here. No. (laughs) Ten, what song did the angel sing? The correct answer is, this is a trick question. The correct answer is D, none of the above. It wasn't a song that they sang. They all shouted. They all said, glory to God in the highest. If you put glory to God in the highest, I'll give you half a point on that one. Okay, I'll be generous this morning. And bonus question, what animals were present at Jesus' birth? Correct answer, really, according to the gospel record, is D, none of the above. Chances are there were animals there because it was in a stable, but there's really no record of any other animals being there. So if you put any of those other answers, I'll give you half a point for that one too. So, okay, so out of 10, anybody here did five or better? Ooh, smart crowd. You slept in. You got your rest this morning. Okay, how many did um, seven correct or better? Okay, none of you guys in the back because you were here at first service, okay? You don't get to raise your hand. Anybody here get like a perfect score of 11? Whoa. You know your Christmas. That's all I can say. (laughs) Getting Christmas right. It's kind of fun to do that quiz. And and every once in a while, it's nice to kind of pull it out and everything. But really, when we talk about getting Christmas right, it's not about the information. It's not about getting all the facts and the data correct. Getting Christmas right is about something far deeper than that. It has to do with understanding and and fully embracing what it is that God intended to do through sending his son. And we know what that was from John's gospel. John writes it this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all people. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus came 2,000 years ago to bring us life. John tells us he came as the word, God's expression to us. He came as the light to reveal the truth about ourselves and the truth about his love for us. But ultimately, ultimately, he says, it was all about life, that Jesus came to bring us life. John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus himself said it a little bit later on in his ministry, John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. He came to bring us life, life at its fullest, life as God intended it to be, life in the kingdom of God. He came as the king of kings. He came as the king of life. But there was another king in Jerusalem at that time. His name was Herod. And Herod and his kingdom looked a lot different. Herod defined life in a far different way, but Herod defined life in a way that we are much more familiar with. Two different kings crossed paths 2,000 years ago, representing two different kingdoms, two different ways of living, two different pictures of life. And in looking at these two different lives, we get a really good and clear distinction and contrast between the life that we live it and the life that God intended for us. And what I'd like to do this morning is take a little bit of a look at these two kings because they represent two very, very different pictures of life. Herod typifies life in the kingdom of man. Herod is like the poster child for life as we pursue it. And in fact, if we would define it in two words, life that is defined as success in human standards, you could put it into two words that simply says, me first. Me first. That's life the way that we tend to pursue it. And, and Herod was the chief of them all. And we define that in a lot of different ways. For some of us, that me first takes on the look of of prestige. We live for prestige. We live about image. It's all about image and admiration. And our motto for life is, life is what you have to show for it. You know, what do you have to show for your life? And a lot of times it comes down to the, the number of initials you have behind your name. MBA, MVP, VIP, CEO, PhD, whatever it might be. They are the brands, they are the titles, they are the ways in which we measure the fullness of our life. It's all about upward mobility. It's all about career advancement. It's moving forward in academia. It's raising up in social status. It's about attending the right school, being on the right career path, living with the right zip code. I mean, think about it. 
Every one of us in this room know the zip code for Beverly Hills. What is it? 90210. We all know it. Anybody here in this room know the zip code for Salina, Kansas? (laughs) No. Because nobody thinks about who lives in Salina, Kansas, except maybe the people who live in Salina, Kansas. But we all want to know who lives in Beverly Hills. Magazines make millions of dollars about people, (laughs) about stars, about celebrities. We all admire and look for that because it's all about up, upward mobility. And Herod knew how how that system worked. He knew how to play that game. He knew what it took to get ahead in life. First of all, he was born into a very politically influential and connected family. That gave him a head start right away. And he actually received his first appointment as governor of Galilee when he was still in his late teens. He started off with a bang, and that was just the bottom. He kept moving his way up. He knew how to work the system. He knew who counted and who didn't. He knew who to align himself and who to not align himself with. He knew how to network. He knew how to get ahead in life. And he identified himself and he hitched his wagon to Julius Caesar until a coup came along. And then he convinced Mark Anthony that he was really on his side all along. And then when Mark Anthony was replaced by Caesar Augustus and Herod was called before Caesar Augustus to explain himself, he said, he made a brilliant speech about how such a loyal and, 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 and supportive and, and, and behind you kind of guy he was. And, and look at just how he had supported Mark Anthony even to the death. And the same support and same loyalty I give to Mark Anthony, I will give it to you, Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was so impressed, he made him king of the Jews. <laughs> This guy knew how to manipulate. He knew how to work the system. He knew how to advance a career. And he went from governor of Galilee to Tetrarch. And from Tetrarch to king of the Jews. And he wasn't just Herod the king. He was Herod the great king of the Jews. And then along come these magi, these strangers from another culture. And they come to his palace one day and they say, where is he who has been born to be king of the Jews? And you got to ask yourself, I mean, we call these guys wise men, but how wise is it to go to the palace of a king and ask, where's your replacement been born, you know? Because this kind of stuff did not make Herod very happy. See, the problem with living for prestige is there's always threats to your throne. There's always somebody that is higher up on the ladder. There is always somebody else with more degrees than you have, with more education than you have, with more initials behind their names than you got. And they are all all ready to replace you. And if your life is built on how high up and how successful you make it, first of all, you're always going to be threatened by other people. And your relationships will never go deeper than the surface because everybody is a threat to your little kingdom. Because the truth is we all have a kingdom problem. Another king, some 900 years earlier, named Solomon, wrote these words. All painful effort in labor and all skill in work comes from man's rivalry with his neighbor. This is a vanity, a vain striving after the wind. He's a pretty wise guy. He says, that's what it leads to. 
It's just a matter of rivalry. For all of Herod's titles, for all of his advancement, he was plagued his whole life with insecurities and fears and threats to his kingdom. For some of us, the problem's not so much with prestige. We don't want to be so far up in the world. But for us, we define our life by our possessions. For some of us, that's the thing that drives our lives. And the fullness of life is measured by our acquisitions. And our motto for life is basically, life is what you get out of it. So get as much as you can. Or as the bumper sticker I once said, saw said, the one with the most toys wins. <laughs> and that's pretty descriptive about our lifestyle. And Herod, he knew how to work that game too. Because not only did he acquire titles throughout his life, he also acquired wealth. He had a huge, huge palace in Jerusalem. And beyond that, he had at least a dozen other emergency fortresses <laughs> that were just as palatial complete with swimming pools and guest houses and the whole bit. He had it all, and it was never enough. In fact, one of the things that he is known for is how he could use his wealth and his accumulation to further his, to further his own place and his own status. He is known for his building projects. He knew how not only to acquire wealth, but he knew how to use it for his advantage. And he used his wealth to gain status. He used his wealth to gain favor with people. And so when he had troubles with the religious establishment who didn't really like him because he wasn't the pure Jew, he built the new temple to keep them happy. And he actually built a brand new city, which was quite an accomplishment in its day, a brand new city on the Mediterranean Sea. And it was a brand new city complete with a state-of-the-art harbor for its time. And what did he name the city? Caesarea. He knew how to use his wealth to gain favor. He named it after the Caesar. He acquired and built tons. And he did it all on the backs of the poor. He did it all on the backs of those beneath him. In fact, the historian Josephus tells us that the weight of taxation and the burden was so crushing that, that many people had to sell themselves into slavery because they couldn't afford to live anymore. He knew how to acquire. And though he might have been rich, rich by human standards, he was totally bankrupt as a human being. And that's the problem with building your life around possessions. No matter how much you got, it's never enough. Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, nor the number of gigs on his iPod, nor the size of his flat screen TV, nor the number of dollars in his 401k, or however else you wanted to find that. He said that is not life. Probably in the last month or so, last six weeks or so, you have probably received tons and tons of catalogs in your mail. I have gotten so many catalogs. In fact, I, I read this week, the estimated number of catalogs that are mailed out to households in the United States every year. Anybody want to guess how many? 40 billion with a B. 40 billion catalogs are mailed out every year to households in the United States. I think I get most of them right at my own house. And every one of those catalogs are designed to do one thing, to convince us that a want is really a need. <laughs> I didn't know I needed that till I saw its picture in the catalog. 
And we all fight those struggles against materialism in our lives all the time. Now, it's not wrong to care for yourself. It's not wrong to provide for your family. It's not even wrong to try and live a life that's fairly comfortable. There is nothing wrong with that. The problem is when that becomes the definition of your life, when that becomes the driving force of your life. And Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? He said, there is something far more important. Don't let that be the thing that defines your life. It is awfully short-sighted to make that the measure of your life. And for others still, it's not so much prestige or possessions. It really comes down to power. For some of us, we define our lives by the amount of power and control that we have. It's about ambition. It's about being in control. And the motto for this kind of living is life is what you make out of it. It's up to you. Take charge. Don't back down. Do it my way. And Herod too, was a master at wielding power. He was so paranoid about losing power that he had had an extensive network of spies and that if anyone even hinted at taking over his throne, they were eliminated. He systematically eliminated any competition to his throne. And his insecurities and his fears became full-blown paranoia. He had 10 wives And every one of those marriages was politically motivated, solidifying power. He didn't love any of them, except one, the one that we are told that he really had any kind of affection for, he didn't trust. Her name was Miriam. And though she was the only one that he really loved for who she was, he was so paranoid that she was going to be usurping of his throne, he had her murdered. And when the two sons that he had by her found out about it and suspected him of the murder and he knew that they might now try to revenge, he had his two sons put to death. He was paranoid. He was so consumed with power. He was ruthless in eliminating any competition, family or whatever because it was all about being in control. And that's why when you read the Gospel of Matthew... And Matthew writes about these wise men coming and asking about the king of the Jews. And Herod hears about it. It says in Matthew 2, 3, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, to say the least. And not only that, as were all the people in Jerusalem. Because everybody knew what happens when Herod's power is threatened. Life and ambition, life of ambition and acquisition and power takes its toll. It really does. And I know every one of us in this room are thinking to ourselves, well, that's not me. I I don't act like that. I'm not paranoid. I don't, you know. But the truth is, we are constantly looking to one up, to advance. We get disturbed and irritated and even angry when things don't go our way. We've all got this kingdom problem. Galatians 6, 8 said, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful desires will harvest the consequences of decay and death. Though most of us may not see ourselves as Herod, there is a little bit of that in all of us. Yes, he is the extreme. He is, he is a picture of unbridled quest for power and prestige and possessions. But there's a little bit of that in every one of us. Bill Hybels writes about it in his book, Descending into Greatness. He writes this, Our greatest power turns out to be that we are deceitful enough to believe our own lies. But if we are honest and take a hard look inside, each of us will see little Herod staring back in our faces. Given the right situation, 
none of us is immune to working a little of Herod's magic. All too often, we use our resources, talents, and charm to get what we want, hiding our motivation in subtlety or feigning ignorance. We know it by different names, office politics, turf wars, marital rights, parental perks, but it always points to the same thing, a misuse of power. Who of us hasn't resorted to a little manipulation with our spouse, a slight mistreatment of a coworker competing for a promotion, or an innocent tooting of our own horn? Which of us hasn't responded impatiently when someone beneath us in the pecking order asks us for a favor, or responds to our kids with a thoughtless, because I said so? Isn't there some Herod still kicking around somewhere inside all of us? Don't we all sometimes trade our value systems in on something a little more self-elevating? We all share that part of him which would rather rule than serve, wield power than submit to authority, be honored rather than look for ways to honor others. There's a little bit of Herod in all of us. And along comes a different king, a new king with a different kingdom and the promise of a different type of life. And it looks very, very, very different from life as we lived it. And he comes along and he says, there's a new life for you. And it begins with humility. It begins with humility. It is not something of our own doing. John said, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. He said, it's not a matter of bloodlines and family lineage. It's not about who you know. It's not about your political connections or knowing the right people. It's not about human effort and striving to succeed. It comes as a gift. Born of God. It is a gift of God's grace. And that's a little humbling. There was a man who had a lot of credentials behind his name who came to Jesus one time. His name was Nicodemus. This man had all the credentials. He was a Pharisee. He had the Ph. E, I don't know what. <laughs> he had the credentials. He was a teacher of the law. He was a member of the Jew- Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He was a man who had all of the credentials behind him. And when he comes to Jesus, he's a little embarrassed because it says he comes at night. When none of his other Pharisee friends can find out. And he begins to ask Jesus about some things. And Jesus says to him, it comes down to this. You got to start over. You got to be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, he said, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. But that is so humbling. I mean, all of my efforts, all of my degrees, all of what I have to show for my life. You mean it doesn't count? No. Credentials don't count. Best efforts don't count. They just keep falling short. All of my efforts come up short. All of my degrees, all of my education, All of my advancement, none of it matters. And if you think about it, what Jesus is calling us to is nothing more and nothing less than what he was willing to do for us. The one who calls us to a new birth is the one who came and was born among us. The omnipotent God puts himself in a place where he is absolutely and totally dependent for his very feeding, (laughs) for every meal, for every bit of care. 
And the word of God that once spoke at creation, and it was so, and it came about, now has to learn to talk a new language. And he spends an apprenticeship in a carpenter shop learning to make things with two hands. A little humbling. But he says that's the way of the new life. It's a life of humility. It's a willingness to put myself and my rights and my interests and my agenda beneath somebody else's. To submit my life to his authority. Why? Why? Why did he do it? Because of love. That is the way of love. That this life that he has for us is now made accessible to all. You don't need a degree. You don't need all the understanding and all the knowledge. You can simply take a step of faith and a step of humility that admits, I can't do this on my own. And what that does is then it begins to rely completely on a relationship. Everything changes. 1 John 5 says, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. What God wants from you is you. He wants your life. He extended his love to you and gave his life for you so that you would give your life back to him. When we were little kids, come Christmas time, it was always tough to buy for my dad. You know, moms are easy to, to get for Christmas, you know. You can glue two popsicle sticks together, paint them red and green, put a little sparkles on it, and mom is just overjoyed. But dads, dads are another story. So it was always hard Always hard to, to, to get a Christmas present for my dad. And so when we were little kids, we would go toward it. And every Christmas, we would do this. Every Christmas, Daddy, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas, Daddy? What do you want? And his answer was always the same. I just want my kids. Well, actually, that's not exactly word for word what he said. What he always said was, what I want is good kids. <laughs> but we weren't sure we could give him that. So, But the heart of what he was saying is, I don't need anything from you. I just want you. I just want your love. I just want you to be in my life. You don't need to impress me with big, fancy presents or wonderfully put together arts and crafts. All I really want is you. And that's what our Heavenly Father says. All I really want is you. Just the way that you are. He came and gave himself to us so that we would in turn give ourselves back to him. And for some reason, I will never fully understand. I don't think I will ever understand it. For some reason, God loves me. For some reason, God loves you. And he loves you and me so much that he wants to fill our lives with his presence. He wants us to fully experience his love, his mercy, and his grace. He wants us to, to put our lives in line with him so that we would discover what a life of obedience looks like. Not because he's exerting power, but because he knows what life is supposed to look like. And he says to trust me. And the trouble is we tend to fill our lives with all kinds of other stuff. And we are like children who have been given an extravagant gift and we would rather play with the box. We would rather play with the ribbons and the bows and the wrappings instead of taking the real gift that he gave us, which is life. And so we fill our lives with stuff, temporary stuff, material stuff, 
even religious stuff sometimes, and we lose the focus of what it's really meant to be. It's about a relationship with the God who loves you. Jesus said, once you diligently search the scriptures because you think that is by them you possess eternal life, but these scriptures are to testify, testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He says, don't you get it? It's about a relationship. It's about a life lived with me. And whatever you do, don't let anything get in the way of that. Don't let anything get in the way of that because that's life. It starts in humility. It is centered in a relationship. And the result of it is transformation. It results in a transformed life. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Because of Jesus Christ, a change has taken place. It is now possible to live the kind of life for which God had designed you to live from the beginning. Starting right here, right now. And gradually, little by little, I begin to hear his words and apply them to my life. And instead of having to fight for my rights and wrestle for control, he says, trust me. Put your faith in me. And instead of trying to carry the heavy load of life all by myself and the the burden that comes with it, he says, Rest in me. And instead of having to push my agenda and do it my way, he says, no, follow me. And our lives begin to change. And every day, at every moment, we take another step into that life. Because our life is filled with decisions that we make on a daily basis. And every one of those count. Because in every one of those choices and in every one of those decisions, I am making the choice about, am I going to live life my way or am I going to live it God's way? Every moment counts. Every day counts. And that's why as often as I talk about my own failures, (laughs) a lot of this stuff, I really do believe it does matter how I drive in rush hour traffic. It really does matter. It really does matter how I treat my coworkers. It really does matter what kind of a neighbor I am, what kind of a father I am, what kind of a husband I am. It really does matter. It really does matter how I handle the checkout line at the shopping mall. <laughs> it really matters. Because every one of those choices determine which kind of life I'm going to live. And the more and more I step into the footsteps of Jesus, and the more and more I take those steps of faith, the more and more I experience the life that he intended it to be. And when I take the choices that deviate from that path, I am missing out on something tremendous. I am missing out on life. And here is the best part. Here is the best part of all, that when I fail, when I fail, and I do sometimes, (laughs) When I fail, when you fail, there is always his grace to pick us back up. John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If I ever want to know what this life looks like, I look at Jesus. If I ever want to know the truth about myself, I read his word. 
And when I come face to face with my failings, I rely on his grace. That is the glory of God. That is the glory of this new life. It is a life learned to live in grace and truth. Would you bow your heads with me? At the end of his gospel, John ends it the way that he began it. He said, this is why I wrote this. This is why I put this down on paper. He said, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by by believing, you might have life in his name. So I want to ask you this morning as we close, just in a few moments reflection, what drives your life? What is it of these three that's most troublesome for you? It is that the pursuit of prestige or the desire for possessions or maybe that quest for power and control. Jesus says you can live differently. You don't have to fight for your rights all the time. You don't have to always be number one. You don't have to have the biggest and best. You can find a life much greater than that. Humbly receive his grace. Nurture and grow in this relationship that he's given you. And let that transformation become a daily experience. This morning, I want to invite you to make a decision about this. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what God's speaking to you about. I know what parts of this hit me pretty hard. I would just invite you in a very simple prayer this morning to make a decision about this and pray along with me. Lord, you know me. You know the way that I go about life. Sometimes I get it right. Often I get it wrong. It's a life I cannot do by my own strength. It's a life I cannot even imagine in my own mind. But there is a life that you have for me, and that's the life that I want to live. And so I surrender control, and I give up my rights, and I put my life in your hands. Forgive me of my striving and my my pursuits, my desires that have gotten out of hand. Lead me in your ways. And as I take this step of faith and make this decision right here and right now, remind me tomorrow morning when I get up what that looks like on the job, in the classroom, with my neighbor. Lord, put that life in me and let it burn bright, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.